listening to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation UK with me, Will DeFratis. And me, Annabelle Bly. We thought we'd start this episode with a joke. There's three guys in a car, and the car breaks down. And the first guy says, I'm a chemist, and I know that one of the reasons why engines break is because the fuel-air mixture isn't combining properly, it's a chemical problem. And the second guy says, no, I'm in electronics, and I know that the primary reason of engine failure is ignition systems, and they're electronic. And the third guy says, I'm a computer scientist, let's get out of the car, get back in, and see if it works. (laughs) Yes, today we are looking at that staple of every IT support desk, rebooting. But not just computers. We'll also delve into what's going on in Syria and the way different groups fighting there are able to rebrand and restructure. We'll also turn to medical science and hear how unexpected drugs are being repurposed to fight brain tumours. And because we had so much material for this podcast, we decided to split it into two parts. Next week, we'll bring you more around the reboot theme including a French politician who's trying to make a comeback, and we'll even speculate a bit on how human civilization might reboot itself after a catastrophe. First, though, back to computers. It's probably the first thing you think of when someone mentions rebooting. But why is it the go-to fix, and why doesn't your microwave or calculator ever need to reboot? To understand why, we spoke to the guy telling the joke at the start. That's Rob Miles. He's a lecturer in computer science at the University of Hull, Rob has been working on computers for decades and Microsoft have honoured him as a most valuable professional for his services to IT. So is it the case since since the dawn of computer science that turning things on and off again is a way to, to fix a problem? I don't think so. I think it got to be a problem when things got more complex. If you have a computer that runs a single program forever and it only runs that one piece of code as perhaps even a single task. What kind of computer program would that be that was, that was okay, so simple? Take, go back to cars. The, the engine management system in your car is a program which is running that device. Uh, the program that runs inside your remote controls that lets you send signals to your TV to, send, to, to change channels, that's uh, a single-purpose embedded device. Um, your microwave is another one. Uh, So these are all things that have a single program that does one thing at a time and has been written to do just that. And those kind of things, because they're sort of fairly simple, they will run pretty much forever. Uh, Whereas a modern computer, where you're changing your applications every few seconds, perhaps, and you're running several at once in ways that designers may not have quite foreseen, that's a bit more complicated. That's where the the trouble comes in then with these sort of newer newer devices from my point of view it's to do with the fact that the computer has to respond to several things at once so at any given instant you've got signals from the mouse the network connector the graphics display unit any of the peripherals printers and things you've got plugged in and the job of the operating system is to basically orchestrate this lot and if things happen in a sequence that it wasn't expecting or or if there's one component written by someone who didn't quite follow the spec correctly that component can then take longer to finish or or interrupt something or reserve a resource not release it in a way that means that degrades the way the OS works and then we have to think about rebooting a bit further down the track. So is is rebooting about kind of wiping the slate clean? Pretty much exactly that. If you have your computer starts off with four gig of memory say and when you turn it on and the operating system loads that four gig is one big lump of free space then you start loading programs in and they start grabbing memory and releasing it and over time that means that memory can get fragmented into several smaller areas of free space with areas of occupied space in the middle now the os is actually pretty good 
uh, tidying up after itself. But sometimes you can get programs that grab memory and never release it. Uh, uh, and, and these kind of issues can cause the amount of free memory to slowly decline. Uh, and uh, in that point, at that point, the OS should step in and sort things out. But sometimes it just can't. And sometimes a reboot's the way you fix it. So maybe a bit like kind of wiping your in-tray clean and sort of uh, yeah, it, you know, it's it's like if, if I'm night. trying to work on things, the first thing I do is clear my desk yeah. because there's a whole pile of screws and components and fittings and bits and bobs, and I can't find anything to work with. So I take all my stuff, put it all back in the cupboard and whatnot, then get out the bits that I need to do that particular job. It's very similar to that kind of thing with the OS. Sure. So what are the occasions where rebooting on the whole doesn't work? Um, one of the worst ones, of course, is something where you've got some malware or some viruses in there which when you reboot, get control back and start doing bad things with your computer. They uh, Rebooting isn't a defense against those. And if you happen to have a malfunctioning piece of software uh, or, or dodgy hardware, rebooting won't fix that. But I think that it's the thing I do before I start thinking about the problem. And if it starts to run slowly and I start to have problems, I'll have a look at the resources. Oh, it's getting a bit full of, of, of uh, stuff. And then at that point, the reboot has to happen. The good news is it's not as big a problem as it used to be. Um, systems are getting better at actually dealing with these things and they're just basically more powerful and bigger so they can ride these things out but it's still the case that every now and then a reboot is, is a good thing to do do you think then we're we're moving towards a point where um reboots become less and less common and may one day uh you know so, so say if we're in a hundred or a thousand years time and we're flying spaceships around might we never need to unplug our starship controllers I think that's that's fair comment. I think as we get better at this this business, and as we uh, sort of tease out the uh, uh, the bugs and the errors, and the computers get better at dealing with that, the re need for the reboot will go. I mean, the biggest time reason I reboot at the moment is to install upgrades. Uh, in that, what happens is you have to turn your machine off to install replacements for low-level driver software, which then comes back in when the machine reboots. As we get better at designing operating systems that don't need that, that's one primary reboot reason that'll just go away. Wow. Cool. The, the post-reboot era. Yes, it, it's a nice dream to have. Uh, I mean, some things, it's all a question of money, really. We could make every computer run forever if we were prepared to spend unlimited amounts of cash to make it go. I mean, people that make aeroplanes and nuclear reactors do this, but people that make work processors are more concerned with adding new features and extra bits to entice us into buying the latest version rather than making them completely perfect. And that's fair comment, because if I tried to make them completely perfect, we'd never get anything. So it's a kind of, it's a compromise. It's like everything else. You, you pay your money and you get what you pay for really thanks rob that was rob miles a lecturer in computer science at the university of hull now one part of the world that could do with a reboot is syria a new ceasefire deal has come into place there as part of it the us and russia are trying to coordinate their airstrikes against the so-called islamic state and other jihadist groups fighting bashar al-assad's government one of those groups the al-nusra front is often described as part of al-qaeda but it's a lot more complicated than that. As the conflict has changed, this group of rebels has taken a pragmatic approach to the situation on the ground and has recently rebranded itself with a new name and a new mission. To find out more, we are doing the Anthill's first collaboration with another podcast. Political Worldview is a regular podcast on geopolitics from the University of Birmingham. It's hosted by Adam Quinn and Scott Lucas. Yeah, it's great to be working with uh, Political Worldview. And Andrew Nocti, the Conversations International Editor, had a chat with Scott about the history of the al-Nusra Front and how it's got to where it is today. Jabat al-Nusra, also known as the al-Nusra Front, 
has for years been one of the most notorious anti-government forces fighting in Syria. For several years, it was formally allied with al-Qaeda, but this summer it announced that the two groups were formally ending their alliance, sort of an amicable divorce. The group is now operating under a new name, Jabhat Fatah al-Sham. As these groups often do, they announced it in a video posted online. Al-Nusra's leaders believe in a strict interpretation of Sharia law, and the group has a long history of complicated relationships, not just with al-Qaeda, but also with the group known as Islamic State, which it now considers a deadly rival. And as with many of the groups in Syria, the way al-Nusra is talked about in the West doesn't really match the reality on the ground. To understand it better, I asked Scott Lucas at the University of Birmingham to explain what al-Nusra is and where it came from. Jabhat al-Nusra was initially linked in the Syria context to the Islamic State. Um, what was then known as the Islamic State uh, of Iraq and Syria, or Iraq and al-Sham. So ISIS had revived in Iraq uh, for local reasons, really from about 2010. And then you had the Syrian uprising in 2011, which I have to emphasize at the outset was very much peaceful protest. It was not dominated by any military groups, let alone Islamist groups. Mm -hmm. But by the time we get to the end of 2011, the attempt by the Assad regime to crush the protest has led effectively to local self-defense groups. There's a loose name for it called the Free Syrian Army, but these are basically just men who picked up arms, joined by defectors from the Syrian army, um, who are now not only defending communities, but thinking the only way to, to come out of this is to try to overthrow the Assad regime. So the Islamic State saw an opportunity, which is they were already looking to expand their territory in Iraq. So they saw an opportunity to get a foothold in Syria. So the leaders of the Islamic State delegated a man named uh, Abu Muhammad al-Jilani to lead um, fighters and members into northern Syria to see if uh, this group, which would be called Jabhat al-Nusra, the Nusra Front, would be able to get a foothold in the resistance movement. Um, both, in a way, working, if convenient, with other um, opposition and resistance groups, but also carving out, of course, their own position, their own, according to their own political and social aims. What is it exactly that al-Nusra believes or wants? Well, this is where it already gets complex, because if you read this in terms of quite often what is a Western context from Western analysts, especially based in the U.S. and those who are jihadologists, so to speak, they'll, they'll always refer to Jabhat al-Nusra first and foremost as al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda-linked, allegiance to al-Qaeda, believing in al-Qaeda's precepts. And I don't dispute that. I mean, Jabhat al-Nusra definitely comes out of that. But the reason why I think you have to go further is, is that when you have a movement which is largely Syrian fighters, because most of the men who joined Jabhat al-Nusra, I don't think did so for ideological reasons. They did so because they wanted to defend their communities or defend themselves. Then the organization has to respond to that. They, they simply can't go in and impose, we are going to bring in the vision, vision of bin Laden, al-Zawahiri, uh, Abu Baghdad or al-Baghdadi, the leader of IS in Iraq. We're going to bring that in and sort of impose that on you. You have to respond more to what the wishes of those local groups are or those local members are. And so you see a process in 2012 and in 2013 
where Jabal and Israel visibly shifts. It shifts in its relationships with these local groups. Under the notion of Dawah, they will have meetings, you know, religious meetings, but religious meetings with a social element where they will talk about their interpretation of the Quran, but they also have social activities. You know, by 2013, we're actually getting to this site, which, you know, it, it makes for a very catchy headline, but you need to investigate it further, where they're holding fun fairs. Jabhat al-Nusra will gather local people. They will celebrate the fact that this is opposition territory. Mm. They will have tugs of war. They will have cream-eating contests. They will have Quran reciting contests. And it is very much a case where I think the movement evolves, or if some would say devolves, according to the local situation. And how has it changed since then? From the time that the Islamic State came in in 2013, I think it raised questions for Nusra. Because Nusra is a majority of local members. Um, it's led by a Syrian. Uh, Al-Jalani is a Syrian. It had defined itself as this local movement. And now all of a sudden the Islamic State is coming in with a vast majority of fighters who are from outside the country. Uh, Chechnyans, North Africans, of course, a lot of Iraqis. And the Islamic State is also bringing in this notion that we would see eventually espoused in 2014 as this caliphate. You know, this caliphate that encompasses Iraq and Syria and beyond. Jabhat al-Nusra, in 2013, in my opinion, had begun to define itself as a nationalist movement. Whatever else you want to say about them, their ties to al-Qaeda, their extreme version of Islamism, uh, they were a national movement in their eyes. And so the Islamic State's decision to go after other Syrian groups, to go after the rebels, that was the catalyst, which is Nusra is going to have to keep going down this path of while it is still has allegiance, pledges allegiance to al-Qaeda, it is clearly seen as a Syrian movement with a, a vision for local arrangements for politics, governance, uh, and social interaction, which is very different from the Islamic State in which the caliphate rules everything. So as the Syrian conflict's worn on, al-Nusra has been constantly changing its name and realigning itself with and against other groups and that's now culminated in the break with al-Qaeda and the latest reboot. And now there's the news that one of the group's commanders has been killed near Aleppo. Um, what else has been happening on the ground since July? I, I think, although it was occurring before July 2016, uh, within days of the announcement, we already saw the battlefield coordination or cooperation that was taking place between Nusra and other Islamist factions, and indeed now other factions, which we loosely call the Free Syrian Army, that you know, which is a loose name for factions which are not Islamist. There was a rebel offensive to the southwest of Aleppo city, which had been put under siege by Russia and the Assad regime, allied with Iran and Hezbollah. That offensive within days, so Nusra, uh, Arar al-Sham, the Islamist faction, other Islamist groups, other non-Islamist groups fighting under an operations room, they broke the siege. Uh, they took a major artillery base. Uh, they took a series of towns and villages. So you saw that militarily you could be more effective if you're fighting together rather than if you're separated by ideological differences. Uh, now, to show you how quickly things change in Syria, there's been a bit of a setback for that Aleppo offensive in that Russia and the regime have been able only a day before we recorded this, to reimpose the siege. But at least the ability to turn the tide near Aleppo, Syria's largest city, has been demonstrated by this shift. And so in a, in a sense, the, um, if you like, the reboot of, the, of Nusra and those groups is in a way forcing 
a rethinking of the regime's approach, Russia's approach, the U.S.'s approach. Is that, oh, is yeah. that how you read it? Oh, abs absolutely, because Syria has never been or, or disappeared long ago simply being the opposition versus Assad. It's multiple actors who make different alignments who work with each other. And I suppose the interesting thing with the Americans is not only is the election coming up, but Hillary has made an enormous play of the fact that she, she says, was initially very much agitating to arm the rebels, to sift out moderate factions, arm them and turn them into anti-Assad, America-backed forces. Yeah. yeah. It yeah, sounds well, from what you're describing that the state of play on the on the ground kind of makes that redundant as long as America regards Nusra as a non-moderate, unfriendly terrorist faction. Well, I think, I think it brings it into play if Hillary becomes president, let me explain. Mm -hmm. um, the Obama administration, or at least the president and his closest advisors in the National Security Council, they effectively walked away from the Syrian conflict in autumn 2013 when they did not respond to the Assad regime's chemical weapons attacks. The important part is, is that the U.S. effectively gave up on the Syrian opposition and the rebels in 2013, unless those rebels fought the Islamic State rather than the Assad regime. What has changed fundamentally is this. You, the idea that you have moderate groups and extremist groups in Syria has always been a political fiction. Those are labels that are, are pretty much meaningless mm. in the local context. You either work with the local groups as they are constituted in their priority of facing the Assad regime, or you don't work with them. Uh, the Obama administration has chosen not to work with them. The Clinton choice will be, do we work with the rebel groups? Again, probably to start off with in the notion of a protected area, a no-fly zone. Or because these rebel groups happen to cooperate on the battlefield with Jabhat al-Nusra, do we just wash our hands completely of them? That was Scott Lucas. You can also hear a version of this segment on the next edition of his podcast, Political Worldview, a geopolitical discussion programme, which he hosts with his University of Birmingham colleague and regular conversation author, Adam Quinn. That was The Conversation's international editor, Andrew Nochte. Next up, we thought we'd take a look into the world of medical research. We tend to think that medicine is always progressing in a straight line, with new improved drugs and treatments replacing the old ones. But what if we've missed something, and an old drug could actually provide the next step in treating a disease? After all, the Nobel Prize winner for medicine last year, Tu Youyou, developed a cure for malaria based on a treatment found in ancient Chinese texts. The Conversation Science Editor, Stephen Harris, spoke to a cancer researcher who's investigating how an old antidepressant could be used to treat brain tumours. Drugs can go out of fashion. What seemed like a miracle cure 30 years ago may now have been replaced with something cheaper, more effective or with fewer side effects. Pharmaceutical companies may simply decide they'd rather market their new product than keep pushing a perfectly useful old one. But what if our bank of old medicines could hold the key to treatments of the future? At the University of Portsmouth, academics are exploring the idea that old drugs could be used to treat conditions they were never designed to treat. Professor Jeff Pilkington, who leads the university's Brain Tumor Research Centre of Excellence, has been studying cancer for over 40 years. I asked him how he came to be investigating whether a drug designed to treat one disease could be rebooted as something else entirely. Where I started developing an interest uh, in the repurposed drug arena was back in the, oh, way, way back in the, the mid to late 1990s when... Um, 
uh, an emeritus professor from University College London, Professor David Wilkie, uh, contacted me, having read my papers on brain tumor, uh, and uh, suggested that he might have something that I would be interested in. Anyway, we arranged a meeting, and he came up with a concept that imipramine, uh, a drug which had been used historically uh, as, a, as an antidepressant, um, and indeed clomipramine, which is the one we ended up using, which has, has been used to treat patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder and clinical depression since the beginning of the 1960s, that those drugs might have some utility in treating malignant cancers. And he'd done some very basic experiments in his labs up at UCL and thought that we were better placed to do this. And uh, I work on malignant primary brain tumors. So uh, we sort of humored him and we showed that this particular drug that we were using, clomipramine, not only killed cells, but it was in fact more successful at killing cells than the the drug that was used in the lab as a sort of gold standard agent, which was storosporine. This drug, clomipramine, this was used as an antidepressant originally? It was used as a, an antidepressant drug used to treat patients with obsessive compulsive disorder and, and clinical depression. Was it still used for this when you, when you started looking at it, or had it, it kind of been fallen out of fashion? Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was still in use. Um, but the new, a new group of drugs, the SSRIs, the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, has sort of over, overtaken the tricyclics. Um, a good example of them is, is Prozac. And this was a new generation of drugs introduced by the pharmaceutical uh, companies to, um, to replace the, the, the tricyclics. You were approached to, to look at this drug. How had it come about that someone had realized that this drug that was used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder might have the potential to, to treat cancer as well. Yes, that's, that's a, f- a fascinating uh, sort of uh, concept, isn't it, that you can just pick up a drug and something else happens with it. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess the, I mean, the answer to that really is that people were using these drugs to, to look at different biological effects. Um, and so if you put these, uh, these drugs onto mixed cultures of brain so if you have a brain culture where you have neurons <clears throat> the neurons arguably don't uh, don't survive for that long but you have a mixed population of different cell types in the brain and i think david wilkie was actually looking at another form of cancer down downstream of this just culturing cells and noticed that the cells died i mean these these were being used to to screen different biological mechanisms but he noticed that uh, unexpectedly the tumor cells were dying while he was putting this onto normal cells and they were surviving can you try and explain just in quite basic terms how you think this drug is damaging brain tumor cells and and not the brain cells so there are differences um there are differences between normal cells and uh, and cancer cells in in many respects. Um, mainly, mainly in this context, the difference has been mitochondria. So mitochondria are the energy metabolizing bodies within cells, and they differ between cancer cells and normal cells. So they have a, a binding. I like to take an analogy of, of rugby balls here because in textbooks, although mitochondria don't really look like anything like rugby balls in reality, in textbooks they seem to. So we'll use the analogy of, of, of uh, rugby balls. So we've got, so we've got cells finish, with rugby ball-like things inside them for this purpose. So you have cells there with little mini rugby balls inside them. And if you, if you take the simplest uh, analogy, the leather around the rugby balls uh, of a 
normal cell is stronger than the leather around the rugby balls in the cancer cell. And this little weakness uh, in the cancer cells enables you to exploit getting a drug into the, into the mitochondria to, to setting pathways running. And these pathways include activating a series of enzymes which lead to death of the tumor cells but not the normal cells. What is it about the, the drugs that you're looking at that, that make them particularly suitable for attacking these uh, weakened cells or the weakened mitochondria in the, in the brain tumor cells? Okay, so one of, one of the problems that we have in treating malignant brain tumors is uh, that although we have a number of drugs which are, which are very useful in, in combating cancer cells, many of these drugs can't get into the brain. So the brain vasculature differs from the normal body vasculature in as much as it's constructed in a different way to protect the brain from various toxic insults. However, this very barrier to, uh, to toxins um, constitutes an obstacle to drugs because drugs, by their very nature, anti-cancer drugs, are very often toxic. So they can't cross the blood-brain barrier. They can't get into the brain. Mm. So you either have to transiently open that barrier or you have to find drugs which constitutively can cross the blood-brain barrier. That means to say they have to be um, are either lipid-soluble or of very low molecular weight. Now, antidepressants, as you would expect, will cross the blood-brain barrier because that's part of their remit. They've got to get into the, into, the, into the brain. So this was quite fortuitous in finding a drug which had been used as an antidepressant, could get into the brain, but also had this amazing property of being able to kill tumour cells and while leaving normal cells unaffected. If we know that these uh, antidepressant drugs have this other effect of uh, attacking brain tumours, why aren't we sort of prescribing it as a standard method of, of treating cancer yet? There's an increasing body of evidence in the laboratory that clomipramine actually is a, is a, a useful agent for treating brain tumours. Now, the big problem is until you get a proper clinical trial up and running, this is not going to be um, considered as an agent to be recommended for use in the treatment of brain tumour patients. So there are, there are reservations about prescribing this drug, but in a rather large number of patients, I think um, there have been some sort of uh, reports over the years, and we've been doing this now, um, work on this drug since the mid-1990s, and hundreds and hundreds of patients with malignant brain tumor have taken clomipramine, albeit as anecdotal cases, and indeed at different dose levels. I think, it's, I think it's very difficult to put your hand on your heart and say this, this is something which is working across the board because we don't know the circumstances. When patients are diagnosed with malignant brain tumor, increasingly they go onto the internet and they look for things and they start self-medicating. So a very high proportion of patients who have this very poor prognosis. So for glioblastoma, which is the most common primary brain tumor and the most malignant primary brain tumor in adults, the mean survival time is, is just over 14 months. So if you're given that horrendous prognosis, then you tend to look for anything and everything. Yeah. And if you put a number of agents into the equation, you can put things in which might potentiate the use of clomipramine. And we have a number of agents that we've worked with which will enhance the effects of clomipramine, but we also have agents which will hinder the, the effect or uh, completely ablate the, the effect of, uh, of clomipramine. 
while you've got these hundreds of anecdotes, because they aren't sort of carried out under strict conditions, you've got lots of things potentially interfering. It's, right. it's difficult for you to be able to draw the really firm conclusions that you need about um, exactly you know, how effective the drug really is. Well, that, that's exactly the case. Uh, and this, this is the problem that we're, we're looking to get more biological information. So if we have more biopsies coming through from patients, then we can link the uh, findings in the laboratory here. Uh, we can link those results to whether patients who then went on to take clomiphramine are doing well or badly. But, but, then, but then, of course, if you're not doing this within the context of a strict cl- clinical trial, you have all these other agents that patients are taking, uh, which are making the, making the whole issue quite cloudy. So where do we go from here? How do we get to this place where we can overcome these problems and perhaps carry out the trials that we need to, to really test the, how effective this drug is and how it should be used? Well, we need to, we need to initiate a, a properly controlled clinical trial, and we need to design that trial appropriately. My, my, my problem, I I think at this stage is that we're going to be given a clinical trial, if indeed we're given a trial at all, but if we do get permission for a clinical trial, the design of it may not give us the answers that, uh, that are there to be had. In other words, if we have this tagged on at the end as a sort of a salvage therapy for patients who've already undergone um, a series of other um, therapeutic approaches, we may end up with a patient there whose cells really are, are just not going to be responsive to this approach. So you won't be able to find out how the patient would have fared if you'd given them the drug at an earlier stage where their cancer wasn't so uh, aggressive. aggressive. And, and, yep. So I think, I think the design of the trial as well as the initiation of the trial is very important in this context. Um, there are a number of patients, a large number of patients out there who I'm absolutely certain have done very well and it's, uh, you, could, you have to extrapolate to why they've done very well. And they, those patients happen to correlate with that we're taking clomipramine. So you can, you can make up your own mind on this. The lack of support for a proper clinical trial shouldn't be too surprising, given that just 1% of cancer research funding is spent on brain tumours. Jeff is determined to continue studying drugs that can cross the blood-brain barrier in a way that chemotherapy treatments can't. He's even developed a repurposed form of aspirin that appears to be 10 times as effective at treating brain cancer than current drugs. But unless there are significant clinical trials or a further change in the law, it will be some time before familiar pills are rebooted as life-saving cancer treatments. That was Stephen Harris, The Conversation's science editor, wrapping up part one of our podcast on rebooting. Next week, Will and I will be back with part two for some more stories on the same theme. We'll be getting dark and apocalyptic as we find out what the day after a nuclear wipeout would look like. Civilization's collapsed. You've woken up the morning after the night before the world, as you know, ended. You've got some kind of post-apocalyptic hangover. But don't worry, there is hope for life on Earth. Mass extinction tend to be game changers. So they often shake things up and reboot the system. A big shout out as ever to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and my co-host Annabelle Bly. Thanks to all the academics who spoke to us. That's Jeff Pilkington, Scott Lucas and of course to Rob Miles for telling us one of his secrets. That's my reboot joke. <laughs> oh, it's, I've been using it for years. If a, de- if a demo won't work, I tell that joke. It uh, buys me a few <laughs> seconds with the audience. <laughs> the Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. 
We are a news analysis website funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check us out at theconversation.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye.